0: Welcome to another edition of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour and co-hosting with me this week, uh, replacing vacationing uh, Gotti Taub, is uh, my friend and colleague Dan Dyker from the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, among other things. And uh, say hi, Dan.
1: Hi, Carolyn. Good to see you uh, uh, on this uh, sunny day uh, in a complex world.
0: In a very complex world. It's good to have you on the program. Um, uh, we're going to talk today about uh, two things. One is um, that uh, unfortunately, uh, with each passing day, it appears that uh, prospects for war in the Middle East, uh, at some level or another, are rising. And the other issue that we're going to discuss, which is related, is uh, the prevalence of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic assaults uh, against Jews in Israel and in uh, Western countries. Uh, and uh, how that all relates to what's happening here and the prospects for war. So why is it that uh, people are so concerned these days, uh, now growingly concerned in Israel about uh, the possibility of war breaking out uh, in the region, either between Israel and some of uh, its neighbors, particularly Gaza, and perhaps uh, uh, rising tensions in Syria uh, and Iran? And um, what are what's happening on the ground? So... First, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the biggest problem, which is Iran, because whether it's in Lebanon with Hezbollah or the militias in Syria operating under the protection of the Assad regime or, uh, or Hamas in Gaza, um, all of these groups, including the Assad regime itself, are proxies of the Iranian regime. And uh, there are a lot of developments now happening uh, with Iran. So, uh, Dan, why don't we talk a little bit about what's been going on over the past week?
1: Well, you know, Carolyn, as you, you've been writing about in Newsweek and uh, and in other uh, publications, and and I've uh, been uh, uh, commenting at the Jerusalem Center uh, policy briefs uh, and JNS, it's ve- it's a very sharp distinction between being one of uh, you know nine million Israelis surrounded by the Iranian regime. We have been surrounded. By the Iranian regime, and as you state very correctly, it's uh, proxy terror organizations for years, and Iran has stepped up um, its border war. They're sitting on our northern border in Syria, tens of thousands of Iranian uh, proxies and mercenaries, including Afghanis and Pakistanis. Um, they're, they're, they control Lebanon uh, politically and militarily, uh, and they're sitting in Gaza. There are Iranian, as we speak, on this uh, uh, Carol and Glick podcast, there are Iranian agents sitting in the tunnels uh, down in, in Gaza. So Israel's surrounded on three borders by the Iranian regime and its proxies. This is little known in the West, or if it's known, it's underemphasized, or um, I might say, overlooked. Uh, but if you're sitting in Israel, uh, you know it's very clear uh, as to why Israelis today are much more. Uh, acutely security conscious of their existential security um, than perhaps uh, d- uh, even decades um, uh, before. And that this leads us to, to our discussion, which is, there seems to be in the West, uh, in my assessment, a misunderstanding that if you are a proxy organization, um, and, and in their view, fighting for liberation and freedom, quote unquote, then you are a legitimate organization no matter if your intention is jihadist or not jihadist um as opposed to the way israel has been uh recast uh, by by some in the west as really being you know the tough guy uh uh and the hardliner when in, so we see sort of sort of this inversion of reality going on around us while iran is creeping um uh, uh under a nuclearizing umbrella with increased um terror activity on all of against Israel on all of our borders.
0: I think that it's important just to uh, now go back to what actually are the immediate events that have provoked these kinds of discussions among us and others in Israel. Um, So over the weekend, uh, Israel was pummeled, southern Israel was pummeled by over 30 uh, missiles uh, from Hamas-controlled Gaza. Uh, They went on all night, Friday night and into Saturday morning, which is, of course, the Jewish Sabbath. Um, so that was happening and those missiles have continued in, in, uh, in, you know, since we uh, since that time. And Hamas has promised that it's going to continue to pummel Israel with missiles and mortars and rockets in the coming days and weeks. So they're not willing, according to Lebanese uh, newspaper just from this morning, that all efforts to mediate between Israel and Hamas to get Hamas to stop uh, shooting missiles at Israel have failed. The Hamas has no interest in doing so. We had a uh, service-to-air missile launch uh, from Syria into Israel that fell not far from Dimona, which is a strategic area in Israel, because that's where Israel has um, a nuclear reactor. Uh, and uh, according to foreign sources, that's where Israel's uh, uh, nuclear nuclear missiles are, are located, uh, again, according to foreign sources. But uh, be that as it may, so we've had an attack, a missile attack that's, that was not intercepted by Israel's missile defense systems, uh, last week. We had, we're having these, uh, rocket attacks from Gaza that are, that, that Hamas is, uh, not willing at all to even, uh, think about stopping. And then we have another aspect, which is beginning around, uh, April 13th, the beginning of the, uh, Muslim uh, month of Ramadan of uh, we've had, uh, met a massive in- uptick in violent assaults by Arab Muslim gangs in Jerusalem and other mixed cities in Israel, including Jaffa, which is Tel Aviv's sister city, um, against Jews, m- mainly against, uh, religious Jews, Jews who were wearing, uh, religious clothing on their way to praying in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, and just walking down the street over the weekend. We also had, uh, a not particularly religious Israeli who was, uh, nearly lynched um by a group of arab thugs as he was walking his dog um so we're having a massive uptick in in those attacks those attacks are being directly incited not only by hamas but actually they were initially incited by fatah which is the ruling faction palestinian authority it's the faction of uh, palestinian authority chairman mahmoud abbas so they've been inciting these assaults on israel those assaults themselves are being uh then, uh, supported by leading Israeli Arab figures, uh, two members of Knesset from, uh, the main Arab, uh, Israeli party in the Knesset, the joint Arab list have openly incited these riots and congratulated them when, uh, Israel bowed to pressure, uh, from the Muslim mosque, uh, in Jerusalem, the Muslim walks in Jerusalem and took down barriers that were supposed to prevent people from congregating outside of Damascus Gate in the Old City. Damascus Gate in the Old City, first of all, it's a pathway for worshipers going into the Old City, whether it's to the uh, mosques on the Temple Mount or or the Western Wall beneath it. Um, And uh, so that was been the site of the the assaults against uh, soldiers, policemen, and civilians um and they were trying to stop the congregations there so that uh, uh, to limit the assaults and there was a massive uh attack on israel both among the israeli arabs and from outside of the country demanding that uh people be allowed to congregate at the Damascus gate uh israel uh, bowed to the pressure and uh removed the removed the uh the roadblocks and everything that had been put up and so they see this as a
1: strategic victory against the Jews. Uh, That's that true, it, okay, Helen, I just want to add one point to your important and detailed analysis here. What is going on? Because generally the status quo in Jerusalem is generally been uh quiescent and quiet. I mean, this is this is sort of an unusual uptick in violence. Well, there are two events taking place behind the scenes. One, the prospect of Palestinian elections in on uh, May the uh, upcoming in the third week in May, and then for Palestinian leader, for the Ra'is, for the chairman, or t- uh, chairperson, in July. There is a bloody uh, confrontation going on between the, P- between the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and its leading faction, FETA, um, which Mahmoud Abbas is the chairman of, and the Hamas. The Hamas, over the last, um, you know, 25 years has made it a strategic goal to take over the PLO. It sees another opportunity today, as it did in 2006, in order to take over the Palestinian street and lead the Palestinian people according to its jihadist, um, publicly declared jihadist agenda, which is uh, loosely translated in English, in blood and fire, we will redeem al-Aqsa. That is the term in Arabic that is being repeated um, hour in and hour out in Gaza over the loudspeakers and, and and also, Carolyn, in the West Bank, uh Judean Samaria. We have a very, very violent confrontation between the PLO and Hamas for control of um, West Bank um, Palestinian controlled areas because of Hamas's failure in Gaza and the uh, great displeasure of Gaza's citizens in Gaza, especially in, in the context of the Abraham Accords, the success of Israel with um, in defeating uh, the coronavirus, um, the relative improvement uh, in the upwardly mobile middle class in the West Bank, the Hamas has to take over Palestinian control in areas of the West Bank. So that's what is drive. There's one event that's driving the violence in Jerusalem. The jihadist. There's a political context. There's a jihadist context. On the jihadist- can,
0: I, can, I wanna, can I just. Can I just uh, add one more thing here. I think it's really important because I think that there are two layers that we have to look at these assaults. The first one is the internal, or there are actually three, um, but uh, the first one is the internal Palestinian dynamic that you're talking about, that they have these elections coming up and that the way that both Fatah and Hamas believe that they have to rally their voters to their side ahead of those elections, whether to the Palestinian uh, legislative council or to the presidency, um, is by attacking Jews. And we've seen this all along, uh, that any time that there's a power struggle between Fatah and Hamas, uh, violence against Jews in Israel uh, rises, because that's both sides way to try to rally the people behind them. And I think that's very telling. And the other thing that you were saying about the dissatisfaction with Gaza, you know, I saw a really interesting um, panel discussion on Al Jazeera uh, that was translated into Israel, into Hebrew the other day, and it was about what's happening in Lebanon. And so, you know, Lebanon is in a state of utter destitution, particularly since the port of Beirut blew up as a result of the Hamas having ammonium nitrate uh, in massive quantities uh, um, uh, in one of the storehouses there in a very critical place, which is, of course, insane. But they did that. They blew up uh, Lebanon's main port. And the country itself has just, I think, that it's sort of unprecedented the amount of poverty, pollution, and suffering that's happening now in Lebanon. Nobody talks about this, but that's what's happening, and it's all Hezbollah's fault. And so there was a pro-Hezbollah commentator and an an anti-Hezbollah commentator. But the one who was anti-Hezbollah was saying, look, you know, um, Hamas, I mean, Hezbollah was pushing us all the time to fight Israel and to get uh, Israeli forces out of South Lebanon and to fight uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Syria for Assad. And look at us now, you know, Israel is wealthy. Israel has the Abraham Accords. Israel is strong. And all, and all we are is destitute and our country is falling apart. And I think that those kinds of discourses are happening increasingly also in Gaza, on the one hand, uh, or, or in Gaza today. And so Hamas feeling the pressure is really putting on the pressure to, is really feeling pressure to be attacking Israel to, to, um, to stop it. Uh, to to I mean to attack Israel to to stop the attacks on their on their failure in
1: governance. Absolutely, Carolyn. This has been a, you know a constant theme uh, that the uh, you know the Jew hatred card uh, the jihadist Jew hatred card always works in in creating a false but temporary temporarily successful um, uh, unity quote unquote uh, in uh, uh, among Palestinians. But it's working less and less. Uh, it, it, the, the Hamas feels threatened about the Jerusalem. Uh, you see, the PL, uh, the Fatah, is trying to take the lead in Jerusalem elections, um, uh, which is was one of the great failures of the Oslo um, of the Oslo Accords was to empower the PLO in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, you know, trying to um, undermine uh, the uh, the normalization uh, and what they call the Tatbiya, the collaboration in a positive sense between. Um, between Israel identifying um, Palestinians who have um, residency cards but very much feel themselves part of the Israeli um, economic reality in Jerusalem, uh, and uh, uh, you know, and trying to up, uh, trying to uproot that, I think that what, there's a deeper issue here that that you and I have discussed uh, offline, and that is that there seems to be an inversion of of reality as to what is moderate. And what is hardline, and, and where we have today the Hezbollah, as you point out, from Lebanon and Syria under Iranian uh, mandate uh, and direction, uh, and the uh, and the Hamas uh, in Gaza. There can there is this there is this sense in the West that if you can talk to these people, um, that then Israel should then uh, by definition uh, concede more, concede gestures, land. And if Israel defends itself too well against these jihadists, Israel gets punished by the West as being, uh, you know, sort of hardline, hardcore uh, extremist uh, and, and you know, peace delaying uh, or peace prohibiting. country. You
0: know, I had wanted to get to that in the second part, which is about anti-Semitism. And I don't know whether we should delay it or go on. But I, I think that one of the things that really comes up very clearly when we're looking also at how the assaults on Jews in Jerusalem and in Jaffa and, and, and Ramla and in other places in Israel, you have uh, mixed communities, Jewish and Arab, um, is that there's been a real effort on the part of the Israeli left and on the part of the Biden administration and uh, the Europeans to try to find an Israeli bogeyman, to try to find a way to blame these openly, overtly, uh, shamelessly, uh, and proudly anti-Semitic assaults on Jews in the streets of these cities on the Jews. So the first effort that they made was that, you know, after all of these, what's happening is that they're attacking Jews, these gangs are attacking Jews, uh, just walking down the street, and they're punching them in the face, and they're beating them, and we saw this, and 2015, there was already an effort on social media to get people to hit juice and post it on TikTok. Uh, And now we're getting it again. Um, And uh, in response to these assaults that everybody saw because they're being posted on social media, you had a far right group in Israel who had a uh, demonstration outside of the Damascus Gate, the focal point of these assaults in Jerusalem. And everybody was very quick uh, Haaretz, Israel's far-left newspaper, uh, was quick to blame the demonstration that came to demand a halt to these attacks for the attacks that preceded it. And they you had the U.S. Progress. embassy.
1: What they called them? Uh, the 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 far-left Haaretz paper set the standard for the New York Times, and they start using the word pogrom. That these that the, that the Israelis are are s- somehow uh, undertaking a pogrom when in fact it was a. Response to a jihad place against I mean, Jews,
0: and I think even more importantly than that, it's very important to point out that the Jews who were demonstrating um, didn't attack anybody. They didn't hurt anybody. They didn't assault anybody. No, they didn't beat up Arabs. Uh, it, there was no tit for tat. It wasn't an eye for an eye. They didn't. They didn't go after the, after the Arabs. Nobody was hurt. They. Yelled, you know, and they screamed and they did so obnoxiously, and there were even some calls for death to the Arabs. but there were no actions, there was no violence against them. there was violent talk, but there was no violent action. And I think that that's very important because Israel's been pilloried. I mean, the. US embassy just put out a statement last, I think yesterday or two days ago where they were blaming both sides, where they were saying there was incitement on both sides. this is a lie. There was also not violence on both sides, only on one side. and now the latest thing that's come out, again with these apologetics, just to show how vile this is, how completely unacceptable, how how truly anti-Semitic it is, is that there's a new line that's being put out now by Arab Israelis. Uh, We saw it on Israel State Television actually last night by an Arab journalist who claimed uh, preposterously that the reason that all of this started was because on April 13th, the Israeli police Uh, uh, turned off the loudspeakers on the Temple Mount from the mosques. Now, just to be clear, you know, I was listening to this on the television. week, April 13th. That was Israel's Memorial Day. And what happened was, you know, in Israel, the one evening that's sacred to everybody across the religious spectrum, you know, the ultra-secular Israelis on the one hand and the ultra-Orthodox Israelis on the other hand, across from the far left to the far right, The one thing that everybody holds sacred is is Memorial Day for Israel's fallen uh, soldiers. And that fell, it goes by the Jewish calendar, and it fell on the evening of April 13th, the evening of Memorial Day. And every year, uh, Memorial Day is ushered in with an official ceremony when the presence of the families, the bereaved families, families of fallen soldiers at the Kotel, at the Western Wall. And it's attended by the chief of staff of the army, the president of the country, and so on. This is the official ceremony marking, marking the opening of Memorial Day in Israel. So ahead of the ceremony, the uh, mosques, the, 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 the leaders of the mosques, massively increased the, the sound of the loudspeakers outside of Al-Aqsa Mosque to prevent the ceremony from being held. So the Israeli police Went there and asked nicely and asked them to turn it down, to turn them off for an hour for the ceremony for an hour. And they refused. So uh, after that happened, Israel, uh, the, the police uh, turned off the loudspeakers so that the, so that this solemn event could be held uh, uh, properly and respectfully. And, um, and actually, uh, according to our colleague, Khaled Abu who's a pal- was the best Palestinian affairs correspondent in, in media period, certainly in Israel. And I spoke to him before we began this discussion, and he said that it actually went off quietly. Nobody, nobody got angry about that. There was no outcry after the loudspeakers were turned up. But now what I saw yesterday is that this event, which was completely justified, is being turned, is being distorted to justify these assaults on Jews by Arabs. And and I think that this is telling. And this gets into the second thing that we wanted to talk about, which was anti-Semitism. And and I, I don't want to leave our viewers hanging, but I do just want to close off the issue of war because I think it's really important because we didn't talk about Iran. And, you know, when I said that there were two things going on, and one is the internecine Palestinian struggle between Fatah and Hamas ahead of the elections and, just their, their, their extreme anti-Semitism and how it, it plays out in their assaults against Jews and against Israeli communities with, with bombs and, and missiles from, from Gaza. We have to look at what's going on in the Iranian sphere. And then we also have to look at finally what's going on in the Israeli political sphere. Gadi and I spoke about it at some length last week about the political morass, but I think it's more important to turn to you just for a second about what's happening with Iran and with the Biden administration, and what kind of impact that has on Iran in its communications with the proxies that are that are enveloping Israel today.
1: Absolutely, Carolyn. I mean, one thing that's really important is you and I know the Middle East is symbolism, and and you just talked about symbolism in in terms of um, you know the accusation of turning down the decibels on the on the um, Muslim call to prayer. Just as an addendum to that. Um, Israel's Memorial Day, as we transfer, as we as we transition to the next question, is also uh, holy to uh, Israeli Arabs of Christian descent and as well as as well as Israeli Druze um, whose religion is an offshoot of Islam. So it's not just you know, what's perceived uh, in the West as, you know, white Israeli soldiers uh, versus all these minorities. But again, Israel is a multichromatic, uh, multicultural reality and um, and people of all backgrounds fight for Israel's survival. So you know, those accusations are actually, and this is very rarely reported in the West, if ever, um, is that Israel's security forces are also uh, manned, if you will, by non-Jewish Israelis who, who fight side by side um, with Jews of all stripes, men and women of all stripes and backgrounds. We move just back to your important point about Iran. Uh, uh, look, uh, you know, um, When, right now, Israel has a stronger alliance with some of its Arab neighbors, such as Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, even Morocco and the UAE, with regard to Iran, than it does with some of its traditional allies in the West. Um, You know, the West, uh, the, the recent, I think it was just yesterday, the recent statement by Jeb Psaki, Ah uh, spokes uh, spokesperson uh, uh, for uh, the White House that that uh, the is the the highest level Israeli security delegation, led by the head of our Mossad and our national security Council and our chief of military intelligence to to uh, run to America in order to show real and in- real-time intelligence as to why going back to the two to the two fifteen jcpoa, Creates a fundamental national um, security danger for Israel's existence as well as for the Western Alliance, was met with the following statement. It will not affect America's calculations. That type of statement signals um, very, very dangerous implications um, because it is a it is a rhetorical wedge between Israel and its strongest ally, the United States, perceived that way by the entire Muslim world. Um, and, uh, and the jihadi resistance network, so-called, um, led by the Iranian regime. So this is when Iran pounces and fires and fires missiles and rockets because it, when it sees that America, uh, uh, even in the perception, is abandoning its key ally and, and that America is seeking to return um, to what every Israeli security official over the last
0: uh, you know, two decades
1: dangerous development in, in this uh, deal that will pave the way up to an Iranian nuclear device. Um, uh, you know, it, it puts Israel in, a, um, in a, a position of being abandoned, really, and alone.
0: I think that it's important to just highlight this for a second, because, you know, one of the things that people uh, misconstrue about the region is that there are provocations that, you know, if it, that Israel provokes Iran doing this, that, or the other, but when you look at the nature of the Iranian regime, you realize that it's, there's never really any provocation. Since the Iranian revolution, the Iranian regime has really, um, existed. Um, it has imperialistic goals. It wants uh, to, it, it, it wants to transform Iran into the head of an Islamic world government, uh, uh, empire. And it also, uh, just as the Arabs, the, whether it's the, the Hamas or, or the PLO, are constantly harping on Al-Aqsa Mosque and using the Temple Mount as a means to keep the Palestinians on war footing all the time and to keep them angry and, and mobilized against Jews. So Iran has used its hatred for America and its hatred for Israel and its call every single day for the elimination of both of these countries as a means to rally support not only among its supporters inside of Iran, but throughout the Islamic world for the regime. They use it as a way to convert uh, 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 non-Shi'ite Muslims to Shi'ism uh, guided by the Iranians. And so this this is sort of woven into the cloth of the Iranian regime is there genocidal intentions towards Israel and also towards the United States. There's really nothing that Israel has to do to provoke Iran Iran will attack Israel every time that it has the opportunity, either directly or through its proxies. And I think that that's one of the things that the Americans, for instance, refused to recognize in the Obama administration first and now in the Biden administration. And I also think that it's important to recognize that appeasing Iran, and we talked about this beforehand, and you know, you and I have both written about this since the JCPOA was first being negotiated, beginning already back in 2013 by Obama, is that. What we're seeing here, and, and the problem with Israeli uh, security brass running to Washington to try to speak, you know, to try to rationalize, to try to speak rationally with the Biden administration about this, is that the nuclear deal, as as Prime Minister Netanyahu made so clear in his speech before the Joint Houses of Congress, it will do nothing to block Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. So it guarantees that they will become a nuclear-armed state at at the latest by 2030 when the final restrictions on Iran's nuclear activities uh, are, are are dissipated, are ended. But uh, it shows the fact that Iran is guaranteed a nuclear arsenal by the steel ship that this isn't a, a non-proliferation deal at all. And that's why they don't care. And that's why Jen Psaki was actually being truthful when she said that nothing that Israel says is gonna change their minds about anything because they they don't care about the nuclear weapons, and it doesn't matter what they say. The fact that the very fact that they're negotiating a nuclear deal that gives Iran the bomb, that legitimizes Iran's illicit nuclear activities that are all prohibited under the, non, the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, of which Iran is a signatory. The fact that the United States is legitimizing shows that this has nothing to do with nuclear weapons per se. It has to do with legitimizing and empowering the Iranian regime that this is a part of a strategic realignment that the United States began undertaking under Obama. And then it was stopped for four years under the Trump administration. And the minute that the Trump administration left the JCPOA in 2018, what did the Democratic Party come and do? They passed a resolution saying that the next Democrat in the White House will restore America to the JCPOA. This was it wasn't a thought act policy. This was a political policy. That's why they could make it on the basis of no analysis. That was why it didn't matter that Iran was substantively breaching the agreement from the beginning by stockpile uranium in excess of the amounts prohibited, uh, prohib- permitted to it by the JCPOA. So that, that they don't care about the Iranian breaches. They don't care that the inspections regime is a joke because Iran can call any installation that they want to a military installation and block U.N., Uh, 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 inspectors from coming and looking at it. They don't care. That's why they're running full steam ahead. That's why this head of the CIA is now in Iraq, trying to get the Iraqi government to uh, unfreeze $5 billion in funds to Iran so that they get sanctions relief without the United States having to acknowledge what they're doing. That's why the Biden administration forced the South Koreans to unfreeze a billion dollars in frozen funds while Iran was holding South Korean sailors hostage So, all of this stuff is going on now because the Biden administration wants to empower Iran. And guess what? Iran is empowered by this. And that's why we're seeing more Iranian naval activity against Israeli naval targets uh, in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea. That's why we're seeing the missile strike that that fell close to Domona last week. It's because they are getting a a backwind from Washington. And Washington is making it explicit that they are back in business of appeasing Iran and and betraying Israel. So I think, you know, this is something that's happening. And then the last thing that I think is really important to talk about, and, you know, Gadi Tab and I spoke about this last week, but is the political chaos in Israel, and with each passing day, it appears more likely that Prime Minister Netanyahu is actually going to be ousted from office and replaced by, uh, by a new government that's going to be dominated by leftist parties. And the head of that coalition of Tali Bennett from, uh, the supposedly ideologically right wing, uh, party gave an interview last week on Israeli television where he essentially aligned his Iran policy with the Biden administration. So if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the politics of it, so we can round this out and then move on to the move back, you know, to what we were alluding to earlier, which was anti-Semitism and how it plays and what role it plays in everything that's
1: happening here now. Well, yeah, that's a big, that's a big question. All this is a very big question. Just just another mm-hmm. moment of context. And that is w- what appears to, to be happening today, Carolyn, uh, under the Biden administration, which began um, uh, under the Obama administration, is this notion of international cooperation through diplomacy as a way of bringing the world, as John Lennon said, you know, where, that we would all be one. And the perception that that um that there is uh, uh, less danger because of the fact that the Iranian regime has the, in my view, has the West exactly where it wants it, um, which is uh which is in a state of I would say um, mental paralysis, believing that um Mr. Zarif is a is a moderate. Um uh, and in fact, when Mr. Zarif himself said, and it was just and, revealed. I'm sorry.
0: I said Zarif is Iran's foreign minister, just for anybody who doesn't
1: follow it. Yes, Mr. Right. Foreign Minister Zarif. It was just revealed uh, just hours ago uh, that uh, through his own secret tapes that he said that he is not running the country and that the so-called moderates are not running the country, the political class. But it's the IRGC. It's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps under direct command of Ali Khamenei um, and the mullahs that are running the country. And they have the West exactly where they want them, which is basically to isolate Israel as the so-called state jihadist uh, uh, actor uh, fighting against or trying to destroy this international um, consensus, which is represented by what was known as the P5 plus one, which is this, uh, you know, the group of, of, of leading international states that uh, sort of tracking the Security Council plus Germany, That would bring the international community into a much safer place. Well, Israel knows because it looks all around at three hundred sixty degrees that the Iranians are breathing down our necks with ballistic and nuclear uh, with nuclearizing power, ballistic missiles, terror groups everywhere we look. So that is, you know, this is a reality versus a perception that we must share with our friends in the West because it is it is increasingly pointing to you know, the possibility of, God forbid, a second Holocaust, which the Iranian regime, as you point out, Carolyn, has been publicly saying in Parsi every single day since 1979, that they will destroy the Jews. They will destroy the Jews. And uh, it was a- I was asked just the other day by, uh, by a friend in the West in Washington, would Israel really attack Iran in order to save itself? I think that the West needs to understand that Israel will do everything and anything in its power um, to stop the Iranian regime, and people need to understand what that means. Um, and this is one of the reasons I think that Israel, uh, in an absurd twist of fate, um, is being is being sort of outed and isolated as the troublemaker when it's the when it's the nation-state of the Jewish people. 60 years after we were nearly completely extinguished, that's trying to save itself a second time. Um, uh, you know, I've spoken a lot here, but will this transition? I'm going to um, toss it back to you to transition into this new. This is, there's a new definition of anti-Semitism, which is actually uh, distancing American Jews from Israel, which is undermining um, the health and well-being of the nation state of the Jewish uh, people, and is actually increasing anti-Semitism around, uh, of, against individual Jews, which is this false notion. That anything, that any attack or assault, rhetorical or physical or both, against the nation state of the Jewish people is, is really something in the area of political criticism, politics. It's not anti-Semitism, and you know that brings the whole IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, uh, that itself has become a matter of tremendous controversy in the West. I'm gonna you weigh in on this. You've been leading uh, on this in terms of uh, commentary and analysis as to why the IHRA definition is so important and why it's become so controversial.
0: You know, it's funny. I just want to say two words about the Israeli political situation, because I don't think that anybody can fully understand. We talked about the uh, the Palestinian rivalry between Hamas and and Fatah. We talked about the empowerment of Iran and how this emboldens Iran and its proxies against Israel. All of these things raise the level of war. And the last thing, and of course, the Biden administration that is openly supporting Iran, Against Israel, uh, most notably, we saw the, uh, the that Azarif claimed that uh, then Secretary of State John Kerry gave him uh, information on 200 Israeli airstrikes in Syria. By the way, for people paying attention, this isn't surprising. It came out in the New York Times. Really, the New York Times is the source of a lot of these leaks by the Obama White House uh, about Israeli strikes in in Syria, and the purpose was to try to uh, deter Israel from from striking. Um, but at any rate, the the thing with Israeli politics that's so disastrous, you know, I I, I wouldn't deny that. I, you know, I think that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been a fantastic prime minister, and, and I think that we still need him, particularly given given the uh, strategic direction of the of the Biden administration. Um, but he's had a very hard time. We've had four successive elections, all of them have ended in an impasse in Israel. And today it looks increasingly likely that he he won't form the next government, that he will be leaving office. Um, and he will be replaced by uh by a coalition of of uh, parties dominated by the far left, um, that are much more willing to give credibility to the American Democratic view, the Democrat Party's view of Iran, which is that Israel should be appeasing it just like the Americans are. And this is very dangerous because what 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 you were saying, Dan, is correct that. You know, when Israel is has its back up against the wall, will do whatever it has to do in order to ensure that it continues to exist. The question is, at what point is it going to be uh, cognizant of the danger? And the one thing that Netanyahu has been really stellar at is blocking the danger, is pe- pushing it away, is keeping it at bay, is fighting it all the time to keep it small. And uh, even in the face of tremendous opposition and hostility from the Obama administration, for instance, for four years and then playing an instrumental role in, in empowering the Trump administration to do what President Trump promised to do, which was to remove the United States from the JCPOA, despite the, the ruling class in Washington being uh, on board with, with, with Obama's Iran policy. So, um, you know, he has been sort of the central figure in the world in blocking Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, and he's been doing so as the leader of Israel. And while I, I don't doubt for a moment that uh, the politicians who want to replace him um, uh, don't want Iran to acquire nuclear weapons, I think that there, that their that uh, lack of understanding of the strategic realities of the world, and particularly what's happening in the West and the collapse sort of, of of Western will to defend its way of life and to defend its power, um, is is going to make it much more difficult for Israel as a practical matter to uh, constantly be be preempting Iran through various means, both diplomatic and other. And I think that, you know, the Iranians sensing that are also feeling empowered. So I think that that's one thing. And of course, the fact that we don't actually have a coherent governing coalition right now, we're sort of in this in-between time before, you know, as one government has been voted out and a new one has yet to come in, um, that this too is sort of putting, fanning the, flames um, of empowering people to attack Jews on the street in Israel and to attack Israel with more uh, strategic strikes, uh from Gaza or from Lebanon or from Syria um, that we've been seeing. Now, I just do want to move because, you know, the thing with, with uh, anti-Semitism that we see in these attacks on Israel that we see, I think, I don't know why, but it particularly angered me Uh, This idea that Israel, by demanding a minimum of respect for the bereaved families and for the solemnity of our Memorial Day for our fallen heroes, for our fallen soldiers, would somehow provoking anger that it would be justified to beat up Jews in the streets or lob missiles at southern Israel because Israel demanded and reasonably, I think, expected for the walk that's in charge of the temple Mount mosques to respect their memories and to respect the solemnity of the occasion by turning down their loudspeakers for one hour. I think that this really points to, you know, the sort of the real reason why there is a conflict. And by the way, the real reason that Human Rights Watch a self-styled human rights organization is really just an anti-Semitic hate group, just published today, it's publishing today, a 217 page report, report, uh, accusing Israel of being an apartheid state, denying Israel's right to exist, justifying Palestinian terrorism, and saying that it's illegal under international law for Israel to defend itself against terrorism. So, you know, this is basically a 217-page, wordy, boring version of the Protocols of the Others of Zion. Zion, this is, this is a uh, license for genocide. This is what Human Rights Watch just put out. And I think that, you know, at the, at the bottom of all of these things, this incredible contempt for Israel, for the memory of our soldiers, this refusal to accept even that minimal right to remember them, uh, with respect, um, by the Arabs, by the Muslim leaders on the walk, by Human Rights Watch, by all of these organizations, by the BDS groups, by, by those who are saying that it's all Israel's fault, all of this stuff that's happening here, and that we're not appeasing them enough. It's either actively uh, based on hatred of Jews or it's about seeing no problem with hatred of Jews. It's about pretending away hatred of Jews even though that is clearly the oxygen that is that is that is uh, enabling, that is pushing, that is maintaining and that is expanding this ever, this never ending war against the Jews whether they're in Israel or in Paris and Sarah Halimi uh, who was thrown out of the window by a jihadist who murdered her brutally, uh, and he's not being held on trial because he was stoned when he did it, or or in Crown Heights uh, and in Williamsburg where people are allowed to essentially beat up uh, Jews without any punishment, um, and and uh, and I think that you know we have to look at it, we have to be able to identify it. It's not just about saying he's an anti-Semite. Mahmoud Abbas, who denies the Holocaust, is an anti-Semite. It's about recognizing something that, you know, Professor Ruth Weiss from, from Harvard really was for me that my teacher in this, which was that anti-Semitism isn't simple bigotry. It's not just, I hate Jews. It's using hatred of Jews to, as a, as a, as a tool for political mobilization. It's that, it, that it's an incredibly powerful political tool for organizers, for community organizers that they, Use this resentment, this irrational hatred, uh, uh, this genocidal um, tick, to rally people behind them. And um, and so I think you know we have to understand that that antisemitism has always been a tool for political mobilization. This is going back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, and it still is today.
1: Absolutely, Carolyn. It's a tool for political mobilization. The only shift, as Natan Sharansky has pointed out uh, so eloquently, is that we, and, and you've written, I think you quoted him in a recent piece, because I, I did a review of some of the stuff you've written on anti Semitism just before we went online here. And, and Natan has said to me also in, in the Israelophobia book that, that we put out a year ago at the Jerusalem Center, you know, um, anti Semitism always hits at the, at the focal point of Jewish identity in any particular era. What do I mean? At first, uh, you know, in the first centuries of the common era, it was religion. It was Judaism. That was the, the rejection of Judaism was the core of the anti-Semitic uh, motivation. And then it became racial uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, and Hitler um, obviously used that platform to try to extinguish the entire, what he called the Jewish race, even though we know that we're not a race, we're a people and anyone join the people if they so desire. Now, the Jewish state or the nation of the Jewish people, that is the focal point of or the central anchor of Jewish identity um, in our era. And that is why um, that is why assaulting the collective Jew, which is the state of Israel, has become so savoir faire, so much in style today. Uh, And the most complex and painful aspect is that there are not a few Jewish influencers that have taken the side of those that we would define um, legitimately as anti-Semites, you know, what, what? how do you define a Peter Beinhardt? How do you define J Street that takes Israel's, some of Israel's worst adversaries and, and puts them up center stage in front of 4,000 cheering Jews, um, you know, uh, that, are, that are cheering some of Israel's worst adversaries. And they're not talking about this border or that border or this territory or that territory. We're talking about the existence of the Jewish state. This brings us into a very painful discussion um, that uh, the international Jewish community is going to have to have as to why Jews today, as they were in the first century of the common era, are involved in, um, in mobilizing for the destruction of, of, in today's reality, the collective Jew, which is the nation state of the Jewish people.
0: You know, I think before I think we should spend uh, probably the last few minutes of our of our conversation here uh, talking about uh, Jewish uh, promoters of this new anti-Semitism. But I think it's also important to underline just how prevalent this is, right? Because you know, um, uh, because what we're the the whole idea. And you were talking about the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's uh, definition of anti-Semitism that said that rejection of Israel's right to exist using double standards against Israel that aren't used for any other country in judging behavior are forms are, are forms of contemporary anti Semitism. And there's just been a huge attempt since Biden came into office and in the months sort of leading up to his to his inauguration to try to disavow the IRA definition of anti Semitism and to replace it with one that that Pretends that anti Zionism, rejection of Israel's right to exist, using a double standard against Israel, the BDS movement, that none of this is anti Semitic. And, And the reason why this is happening is because this is not only in violence and war towards Israel, but also in violence and assault and demonization of Jews worldwide. This is the most prevalent and certainly the most politically powerful. Form of Jew hatred in the world today. You know, I've, I've come to the point where I'm getting tired of using the term anti-Semitism because, of, of course, anti-Semitism is a term that was that was created by an anti by an anti-Jewish bigot, a genocidally anti-Jewish bigot, begin uh, in in uh, in France in the in the mid 19th century, and um, it was because they wanted people to think of Jews as a race as opposed to as a people, and this was an instrumental move on his part because he didn't want, because it was no longer in fashion to be a religious Christian and therefore theologically based anti-Semitism was no longer in fashion. So he wanted to invent a new form of anti-Semitism, make people feel comfortable both being anti- being both atheist and anti-Jewish. So he invented this concept of anti-Semitism. So when we're using it, we're actually using a term that was invented to enable uh, anti-Jewish violence, uh, beginning at the age of, uh, you know, and during the enlightenment and the age of science uh, in the mid-19th century in the industrial revolution. So so I don't like the term anymore. Um, I, I think that it's used to whitewash, particularly now contemporary anti-Semitism because what they're doing now is they're saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We're not racist, right? We're anti-racist. We don't oppose Jews. As a race, we oppose Israel as a state, and that has nothing to do with Judaism. So, if anti Semitism was a way to wipe out the Torah hatred, right, the the hatred of of the Jewish religion and the attempt to replace Jewish theology with the post Jewish theology, the New Testament that was supposed to blot out the old, uh, here